let us begin. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to what it means to be subject to justice in all of its forms. Give us the strength and the courage always to open our minds and to listen to hear what you want us to hear. Help us then to give ourselves to you at least during this hour and a half and then go forward and live it. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. As I said in the handout here, if I had to give this uh, lesson a name, it would be don't judge a book by its cover. I hope by this time you've seen that you can't read Deuteronomy uh, as you might some other books of the Old Testament. It is totally a different style, a different kind of book, and it takes some really digging into it. And that's why I asked you to read from the Book of Kings, just to give you some idea of the what was going on at the time that this was written in the ninth or the eighth centuries BC. And so it's important that we always try to understand what the book tries to tell us and we have to know a little bit of about the background of it before we can go much further. So that is why I've written this part on justice because I'm sure that when, if, if you read, and I hope you did, uh, the chapter, the first four chapters, and then beginning with the second speech, uh, which is beginning at the end of fourth chapter, uh, that you'll see that there are a number of things spoken about in Deuteronomy that might question you as to really is God uh, all loving as he is uh, reported to be. And we've heard that, you know, God is love, God is love, God is love, that all of the sermons, uh, particularly on Sunday, Rarely do we hear about the opposite side of the coin, which is justice. If God is perfect love, then he is also perfect justice. And that is something that we have a tendency to overlook. And I can't remember ever hearing a sermon on perfect justice of God. Uh, and that is why I wrote, or actually copied, because I didn't write it, uh, this page on justice. And that's what I would like to take up right now. So if you'll turn to that, that I'm going to read it for the purpose because, as uh, all you know, this is being recorded, and there will be people that may not have the opportunity to read this. 
And so let us go through because I want to also explain some of it as we get into it. And as I say right up front, uh, there is the word just, justification, uh, and justified, etc. We will include all of those in here along with the word righteous and righteousness that is used more by Protestant uh, denominations than it is by Catholics, but nevertheless, they're all pretty much the same thing. The New Testament concept of justice incorporated elements of Old Testament writings. Matthew and Paul give justice primary importance, and they note that justice will be demanded in the judgment to come, a justice only achieved by accepting the gospel of Jesus. Becoming a disciple of Jesus removes one from the company of the unjust, and fulfillment of the commands of justice is an expression of the justice of God. Jesus is the teacher of justice for his community, and for Matthew, Justice means being free of sin. Luke identifies justice with fear of God, and in Matthew, justice obtained through baptism. But in Mark's gospel, little mention of justice is made because of the unique objectives and purpose he had in composing his gospel. Now, Mark is, Mark's gospel is the, actually the shortest. Uh, Mark from what theologians tell us and Bible scholars tell us, is that Mark intended to collect the sayings of Jesus more than the circumstances around those sayings. So you don't have a lot of detail uh, explaining uh, what some of the statements mean in the Gospel of Mark. And that is probably why it is the shortest Gospel. Uh, so I can understand what the writer is saying here, that Mark's gospel doesn't mention justice much at all. In very short and very plain terms, the word justice means giving what is due to a person according to his or her actions. And that has a, a very wide range of meanings, uh, meanings, and that's why we'll go, go a little bit further here. For Paul, justice is a gift from God to humanity, and being in Christ means being in the justice of God. God opens up a cosmic fear, sphere where justice dwells. Justice is a gift from God and from Paul. It is the faithful execution of his promises to the patriarchs. The justice of God is revealed not through the law, but by the sort of faith shown by Abraham. Now, in both uh, one of the Gospels, I forget offhand, and in the book of Hebrews, it very clearly says that uh, Abraham was faithful to God in all things, and it was counted to him as justice. The reference is primarily to the fact that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, uh, 
because he thought that that was what God wanted. And luckily, God stopped him in the midst of that. Let's see, uh, backing up a little bit. The justice of God is revealed not through the law, but by the sort of faith shown by Abraham. For faith is the means by which justice is obtained. One is tempted to follow not the justice of God that should have been a uh, <laughs> oh after the word justice is just a typo. Uh, Got to fire that guy. Uh, but one's own justice. In the apocalyptic tradition, the just one endorses persecution in fidelity to the Lamb. And that is something we're going to get into. And uh, we've already seen some of that already. Concepts of justice in the modern world have changed. As a result of the rise of capitalism, Economic concepts of justice have come to dominate thought, and this has stripped Judeo-Christian notions of justice of their transcendental and metaphysical connotations. The idea of justice being only, which only obeys the requirements of contracts. See, what it's saying here is that we've lost the true sense of justice and are thinking only in terms uh, of legal definitions or contracts. I'm, oh, I did? Oh, well, goodness, I'm glad you caught that because it tells me you're paying attention. See? <laughs> Concepts of justice in the modern world have changed. As a result of the rise of capitalism, economic concepts of justice have come to dominate thought. And this has stripped Judeo-Christian notions of justice of their transcendental and metaphysical connotations. The idea of justice being an entire outlook on life has been lost. And justice has been reduced to commutative justice, which only obeys the requirements of contracts. The classical concept of justice as a gratuitous gift from God and a comprehensive virtue, general justice, that permeates one's life has been in large part lost and is in need of recovery. Amen. This general or legal justice is a justice that exercises all of the virtues to the extent that they bear upon the common good of the community. Recovering this might require us reasserting the view of the fathers that human person belongs that the human person belongs to God and must give back to God what is due. Justice is ultimately surrendering oneself to God and not asserting oneself, one's power over one's possessions absolutely. In moral theology, Justice is the cardinal virtue by which one gives another what is due. And that is primarily, primarily what God is all about. God will give to us and reward us according to our deeds. Uh, what that really says, you know, more easily understood manner, I hope, 
is that we have to sit and take inventory of our relationship with God. As I mentioned last week, I had overheard a conversation uh, by a young man saying that he's prayed and prayed and prayed to God for certain things, uh, and yet God never seems to come through. But if, and I know this person not real well, but well enough, if you know this person, uh, his lifestyle is anything but reflecting a love for God. Yeah. I mean, he's divorced, remarried, outside the church, doesn't go to church, doesn't pray. And then when he asks God for something and God doesn't uh, come through, you know, what do you expect? God is not a sugar daddy. He's not just going to give us anything and everything that we want just because we want it. Yes. That's right. No is an answer. Yeah. Uh, but we fail to often realize that or want, don't want to accept that. Uh, we want what we want. We fail to think of what does God really want of us. Remember, God made each and every one of us. And he's given each and every one of us a little part to play in his plan of salvation. And do we ever think about or pray to God to enlighten us as to what that part is? Very few people even think about it. And yet, if we have a real deep relationship with Christ, that becomes a very important part of that relationship, that we fulfill that little part that uh, we have to play in God's plan. Now, some people will say, well, how do we know that we have a part to play? Well, if you read St. Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, I make up in my body what is what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. When I first read that one time years ago, I thought, what could be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? That was, you know, infinite. What he's really saying is, yes, he opened the door, but we have to take steps to go through that door. We have a part to play in God's plan of salvation. And it is up to us to sit and think and ask God to help us understand that. I've been teaching now for over 40 years. I have come to see that this is my part in God's plan of salvation, among other things. Unfortunately, he adds more and more and more. Uh, But nevertheless, we all have a small, small part to play And that helps us to click into our relationship. If we ask God to help us understand what that part is and help us to fulfill it, that helps us to not only strengthen our relationship, but to understand what that relationship is. So that's why I'm trying to get you or or encourage you to think about it to spend some time asking God to help you understand uh, the ramifications of 
a relationship and how it affects you personally. How you, you want to know better what he is wanting for you. All right, let's get into chapter 7. Now, this is the second speech of Moses, or it is the second speech that the Deuteronomists have constructed using the voice of Moses. There's a big difference there. Remember, the whole book of Deuteronomy is written as a commentary on the lifestyle of the people, particularly the leaders, the rulers uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th and the 8th century B.C. And that is why you'll see uh, or hear certain passages in this writing that would not be in the books of Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers because those three books are written as history. This book is not written as history. This is commentary or instruction. And chapter 7 is probably one of the more difficult chapters to really get our minds uh, around it. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you are to enter and occupy, and this and dislodges great nations before you, the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Prizites, Hivites, Jebusites, on and on and on. Seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them up to you and you defeat them, you shall doom them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, rather giving your daughters to their sons, not taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons from following me to serving other gods. And then the wrath of the Lord will flare up against you and quickly destroy you. Now, that sounds pretty darn harsh, does it not? You have to remember that when this book was written, it's trying to get the people to remember what happened in the past. It's not telling them to go out and do this. These nations probably didn't exist in the 9th or 8th century BC. They were century, they were uh, tribes that were uh, in the promised land at the time of Moses. So you're talking about seven or eight hundred years, seven or eight hundred years later. So what the book is trying to tell you is that the people of the 7th and 8th century B.C. who were intermingling with the nations around them in a very overly friendly way and uh, developing relationships and moving sort of back and forth and including them in uh, for various purposes, their own functions. And this is not what God wanted of the Jewish people. 
they were to become an exclusive nation that he could use to eventually speak through them to other nations, but that is not available to them yet. Yes, Anna? Yeah. But this is how we must deal with them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, chop down their sacred poles, and destroy their idols by fire. For you are a people sacred to the God, uh, your God. He has chosen you from all the nations on the face of the earth to be a people peculiarly his own. It was not because you are the largest of all nations that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you are really the smallest of all nations. It was because the Lord loved you and because of his fidelity to the oath he had sworn to your fathers that he brought you out uh, with his strong hand from the place of slavery. Now, again, this is talking, if you realize it, this is in past tense, all right? Meaning that it is referring back to what was going on beforehand. And the problem that the people of the ninth and the eighth century was they were building altars to pagan gods and worshiping pagan gods along with the god, with the only god. And that is what the Deuteronomists here are complaining about in writing this in this fashion here. It was because, I'm going down to verse 8, it was because the Lord loved you and because of his fidelity to the oath he had sworn to your fathers, and that was to give total allegiance um, in both directions, God to Moses and his descendants and Moses to God. Uh, let's see. It was because the Lord loved you and because of his fidelity to the oath he had sworn to your fathers that he brought you out with his strong hand from the place of slavery and ransomed you from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand then that the Lord your God is God indeed, the faithful God who keeps his merciful covenant down to the thousandth generation toward those who love him and keep his commandments, but who repays with destruction the person who hates him. He does not dally with such one, but makes him personally pay for it. This is where justice comes in. You shall therefore carefully observe the commandments, the statutes, and the decrees which I enjoin on you today. Justice, because God expects you to treat him as he has been treating you. And if you go to a wayward way, that is what you're going to get in return. Justice. As your reward for heeding these decrees and observing them carefully, the Lord your God will keep with you the merciful covenant which he promised on oath to your fathers. To your fathers, in this case, would be Moses 
Isaac and Jacob. He will love and bless and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the produce of your soil, your grain and the wine and the oil, the issue of your herds and the young of your flock. In the land which he swore to your fathers, he would give you, that is, the promised land. You will be blessed above all people. No man or woman among you shall be childless, nor shall your livestock be barren. The Lord will remove all sickness from you. He will not afflict you with any of the malignant diseases that you know from Egypt, but will leave them with but will leave them with all your enemies. Again, he is talking about past tense. You shall consume all the nations with the Lord, which the Lord your God uh, will deliver you, deliver up to you. You are not to look on them with pity, lest you be ensnared into serving their gods. Let me stop here for a minute. Even today, because we are ignoring God, I think God is sending a lot of these natural disasters upon us to try to get our attention, and we're still ignoring that. Why, God, are you burning my house down? Why are you doing this, and why are you doing that? Um, it is because we have, as a society, not just we in the United States, but the entire world, is ignoring God altogether. And I think we are beginning to see the wrath of God coming against us. Again, justice. These nations are greater than we. How can we dispossess them? But do not be afraid of them. Rather, call to mind what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. There is no indication that the time of Joshua and Caleb coming into the promised land, that there was any wholesale annihilation of any kind. There's no history of that. Yes, there was moving uh, in, and some in some cases, the people that were there were moved out, uh, which may seem to us, as we were, as we are so legally minded, uh, that is totally wrong. But remember, this was God's holy will. Also, we have to remember that the ownership of land was not at this particular time, or even going back further to the time of Moses, was not like it is today. You know, you can't even own a, a foot of land out there with some long paperwork contract and all kinds of uh, uh, support documents, and just transferring land from one person to another is a uh, almost an unbearable uh, arrangement of some kind. But in this day, people could move into and across lands 
because no one owned the land outright in a legal sense. Most of the people were concerned with having enough land to feed their flocks. And that was the primary purpose. And people would come and go in different directions almost at will without any legally uh, binding problems. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I lost my place here, but... Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them uh, until the survivors uh, who have hidden from you are destroyed. Therefore, do not be afraid uh, or terrified by them, for the Lord your God, who is in your midst, is a great and awesome God. He will dislodge these nations before you, little by little. You cannot exterminate them all lest the wild beasts become too numerous for you. The Lord your God will deliver them up to you, and you will rout them utterly until they are all annihilated. He will deliver their kings, and so forth and so on. This whole chapter is really about the idea of what Moses and then his successor Joshua and Caleb did way back. And so it's trying to impose on the people of the ninth and the 8th century. All of these things were done at the hand of Moses and the people suffered. And it could be that he would do the same thing to the northern kingdom of Israel if they don't respond and do what he has asked of them. And eventually... That is exactly what happened. The northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians and the people were carted off to Assyria never to be seen or heard from again. So God actually is warning these people ahead of time. And yet the people who wrote this book were run out of town. And the total book was... Totally ignored. And what God is really saying here about the people way back in time is happening to them. And I think we are going to be suffering the same thing. Not that we're going to be run out of town in any way, uh, because the whole world is caught up uh, in ignoring God. And so... God is going to unleash toward us and over us a mighty disaster. Yes, William? Well, the thing is... Well, they probably did, but... No, see, those things really never happened. Uh, God is saying that they could have happened and they were warned way back, but it didn't turn out that way. God... Well, that was the people to whom this book is being written. 
That is unfortunately, yes. Yeah. That's all right, Julie. I'm kind of lost too. <laughs> the whole chapter, uh, as I really said here in the handout for this morning, we must remember Deuteronomy is a commentary on the style of the people against the style of the people on, uh, in the 9th and the 8th century BC. There is no evidence that such destruction or annihilation ever happened, but the point is, it could have. God can do anything, and in the long run, he did in any power that he did against any power that turned against him or his plan of his salvation. And this included the kingdom of Israel and eventually the kingdom of Judah also. But look at it in a, a different way. You have several kingdoms that in some way harmed or persecuted or enslaved the Jewish people. The Egyptians, the uh, Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Not one of those have ever become a major power in the world, or to the world. And that is because they persecuted or enslaved the Jewish people at one time or another. And that is what God is trying to tell us, that he can protect us, but he can also punish us. And it is not condemnation necessarily. Punishment is not the same as condemnation. Punishment can be a sign of God's love, and it's kind of a wake-up call. So we have to be very, very careful and think through, have we ignored God? And have our families ignored God? Uh, last Sunday in church, uh, a mother and teenage daughter came in on uh, the same uh, pew that I was in. The daughter never showed any sign of understanding that she was in church. The moment she got in, of course she was right next to me, so I couldn't help but observe it. The moment she got in, she turned her back to the altar and started looking around uh, to who was there. When it came time to say the Gloria at the beginning of the Mass, she could have cared less. So I picked up the leaflet that's in the pew there, and I handed it to her right where it was. <laughs> well, I think she looked a little embarrassed. Um, but she did read it, you know, and she did follow along while everyone else, else was. But her mother didn't do that. That's right. Her mother didn't do that. So I was hoping that both of them would see and get some idea of... Uh, 
where they were and what they should be doing. How many people go to church just to get their obligation ticket punched? And they don't think about it any more than that. And that is a tragedy. Just the mere presence in church is not worshiping God. And that is what the third commandment is all about. I think it's the third commandment. Uh, you know, keep holy the Sabbath day. And that is part of the way we keep holy, is by starting out our day at Mass, giving thanks to God for all of the benefits and blessings that he's given us. But if we go there and then worry more about, well, I want to get out of here, let's see, it's certain time so I can, you know, get to over to the mall or Walmart or some of the golf course or someplace like that, uh, then that is not worship. We are not fulfilling what we're supposed to be doing. Yes? Be careful to observe all the commandments I enjoin on you today, that you may live and increase and may enter into and possess the land which the Lord promised on oath to your fathers. Remember how for 40 years how the Lord your God has directed all your journeying in the desert. I'm wondering why the writer used the word journeying rather than wandering, but um, journeying sounds more or less they did it uh, on their own. Um, wandering sounds like they didn't know what was going on. Um, so as best to test you by affliction and find out whether or not it was your intention to keep his commandments. He therefore let you be afflicted with hunger and then fed you with manna, a food unknown to you and your fathers, in order to show you that not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. Where have we heard those words before? Hmm? That's right. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by the devil during his 40-year fast at the beginning of uh, his public uh, time? The clothing did not fall from you in tatters, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. So you must realize that the Lord your God disciplines you even as a man disciplines his son. Okay. But he loves and furnishes all that he can. And that's, that's the point he's making. Love and discipline go together. Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good country, a land with streams of water, with springs and fountains welling up in the hills and valleys, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, of olive trees and of honey, a land where you can eat bread without stint and where you will lack nothing, a land of 
a land whose stones contain iron and whose hills you can mine copper. But when you have eaten your fill, you must bless the Lord your God for the good country he has given you. Be careful now not to forget the Lord your God. And that's exactly what we are doing today. We're totally forgetting the Lord by neglecting his commandments and decrees and statutes, which I enjoin on you today, lest when you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and lived in them and have increased your herds and flocks, your silver and gold and all your property, you then become haughty of heart and unmindful of the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. And how much are we doing that today? Well, not all of it, though. The round around Jerusalem, yes. Well, yes, but you've got to remember, he's comparing this to Egypt. You see, Egypt way back had no arid land at all and had to import a lot of its food even way back in the time of Moses. Yeah. Yeah, there is no there is no river in Israel. That's right. Yeah. Well, you got a point there, but I can't help you out. Yeah. But I think what he's doing is he's making that comparison that Israel will be far greater in the abundance of the things that it produces when compared to Egypt. That might not work today, but then, you know, naturalists say that the earth has changed in many ways. Um, yeah. So, again, I lost my place. Uh, all right, let's go down to 18. Remember then, it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to acquire wealth by fulfilling, as he has now done, the covenant which he swore to your fathers. But if you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, and this is what the people of the ninth and the 8th century were doing, serving and worshiping them, I forewarn you this day that you will perish utterly like the nations which the Lord destroys before you. So you shall too perish for not heeding the voice of the Lord your God. And they did perish. They did, because they totally ignored God. They ignored this book altogether. So, that's why I wrote here, in uh, God's care is dependent upon obedience to God's commandments and 
Ignorance of God's plan and his will is no excuse because it is laid out very clearly before us. And if we don't understand, we should take it to prayer and try to get God to open our minds and our hearts. And disobedience has its consequences. Again, a sign of justice. Any questions? Let us go on. Chapter 9. Fear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to enter in and put dispossessed nations greater and stronger than yourselves, having large cities fortified to the sky. Well, I don't think that that was it. I think this is exaggerating a little bit. But then the Jewish people love to exaggerate in their writings. Mm -hmm. The Anakim, a people great and tall, these were the giants that uh, the scouts 40 years before had found. You know of them and have heard it said of them, who can stand up against the Anakim? Understand then today that it is the Lord your God who will cross over before you as a consuming fire. It is he who will reduce them to nothing and subdue them before you so that you can drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord promised you. After the Lord your God has thrust them out of your way, do not say to yourselves, it is because of my merits that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. For it is really because of the wickedness of these nations, that is the ones that possessed it before them, that the Lord is driving them out before you. No, it is not because of your merits or the integrity of your heart that you are going to go in and take possession of their land. But the Lord your God is driving these nations out before you on account of their wickedness and in order to keep the promise which he made on oath to your fathers. Your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand this, therefore. It is not because of your merits that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. That was true then, in the time of Moses, it was true in the ninth and the 8th century, and it is true in the 21st century A.D. Bear in mind, and do not forget, how you angered the Lord your God in the desert from the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived in this place. You have been rebellious toward the Lord. Now, remember, rebellious in many ways and at many different times. First, they were rebellious because they wouldn't go in to the promised land shortly after leaving Egypt because they were afraid of the Anakim, that is, the so-called giants. Well, these were people from the north who were built in a much different way, even today. People from northern Europe are much larger and 
uh, so forth in uh, stature than people from the south. Uh, I lost my place here. Do not forget and do not uh, uh, how you angered the Lord your God in the desert for the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived in this place. You have been rebellious toward the Lord. At Horeb you provoked the Lord and he was angry enough to destroy you. But he didn't. Mel, don't you think today even the people are uh, God's angry with them? You bet. I think that is why we are experiencing all of these natural disasters, and not in just one part of the world, but all over the world. Yeah, the whole world yeah. That's right. So you yeah. When I had gone up the, uh, the mountain, this is verse nine. When I had gone up the mountain to receive the stone tablets, and this is Moses speaking to the people through this speech here. Um, to receive the stone tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you. Meanwhile, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights without eating and drinking, till the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone inscribed by the Lord's own finger with a copy of all the words that the Lord spoke to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Then at the end of the forty days and forty nights, when the Lord had given me the two stone tablets of the covenant, he said to me, go down from here now, quickly, for your people whom you have brought out of Egypt have become depraved. They have already turned aside from the way I pointed out to them and have made for them a molten idol, that is the golden calf. I have seen how stiff-necked this people is. The Lord said to me, let me be that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under the heavens. I will then make you a nation mightier and greater than they. And of course, this is where Moses talked him out of that. When I had come down again from the blazing fiery mountain, this is Moses again, uh, with the two tablets of the covenant in both my hands, I saw how you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had already turned aside from the way which the Lord pointed out to you by making yourselves a molten calf. Rising, uh, raising the two tablets with both hands, I threw them from me and broke them before your eyes. Then as before, I laid prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. What he's trying to do, what the writer is trying to do is shame the people of the ninth and the eighth century into seeing the evil of their ways of that time period and going back to doing some of the things that uh, were done at the time of Moses. And then as before, I lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights without eating and drinking, etc., etc. You once again... Um, you, once again, the Lord listened to me. Uh, I'm sorry. Yet, once again, the Lord listened to me. With Aaron, too, the Lord was deeply angry and would have killed him had I not prayed for him at that time. And that was because uh, Aaron was the one who sort of meekly said, well, you know, 
they thought I thought they were going to kill me. So I made this, you know, uh, I threw all of this gold into the fire, and this is what came out. You know, no, no, no. No. Then taking the calf, that is the golden calf, the sinful object you had made, and fusing it with fire, I ground it down to powder as fine dust, which I threw into the wadi, that is the river, and went down the mountainside. At Tabra, or Massa, or Kilboth, whatever here, likewise, you provoke the Lord, and he's reminding them of the many times that they uh, rebelled against the Lord and against Moses. And when he sent you up from Kadesh Barnea to take possession of the land he was giving you, you rebelled against this command of the Lord your God and would not trust or obey him. Ever since I have known you, you have been rebels against the Lord. Those forty days then and forty nights I lay prostrate before the Lord because he had threatened to destroy you. This is my prayer to him. O Lord, destroy not your people, the heritage which your majesty has ransomed and brought out of Egypt with your strong hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look upon the stubbornness of this people, nor upon their wickedness and sin lest the people from uh, whose land you have brought us say, the Lord was not able to bring them up into the land he promised, or out of hatred for them he brought them out to slay them in the desert. They are, after all, your people and your heritage, whom you have brought out uh, by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Again, if he can't get it by threatening, he gets it by shaming them. But one way or the other, you know. Uh, and, and yet, unfortunately, after all of this, they still didn't accept him. Chapter 10. At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut two tablets of stone. This is when he goes back to get a carbon copy, or a Xerox copy, I should say. Cut two tablets of stone like the former. Then come up to the mountain. You ever wonder why two tablets? Anyone thought about it? That's right. The first three, and that's you'll often see this. Uh, depicted in this way. <clears throat> the first three are directly connected with mankind's relationship with God. And the other seven are mankind's relationship with other man, but in order to worship God. All right. So that is why you often see, uh, we have no way of knowing whether these were connected uh, or not. And I don't think it really makes any difference. 
when it says two, I would assume that they were separated. But if you spend any time trying to see whether or not you are living up to the commandments, as we all should be, then look at it this way. The first three are God's direct relationship with you and you with him. Seven through ten are your relationship with other mankind, but in order to honor God. The Lord wrote on them, as he had written before, the Ten Commandments which he spoke to you on the mountain, from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, after the Lord had given them to you. I turned and came down to the mountain and placed the tablets in the ark. I made them in the ark that I had made. They have remained in keeping with the commandment the Lord gave me. That is, in the ark of the covenant, which is this little box, you know, about so big, so high, etc., etc. And in them was carried the stone tablets, a jar of the manna that had fallen and that they had lived on for nearly 40 years in the desert, and the staff of Aaron that was used to strike the Jordan, uh, so that, or rather the Red Sea, so that they could cross over. Those three items were carried in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was represented as God's uh, presence among the Jewish people. And this was a treasured item uh, that lasted up until the Babylonian captivity when the Babylonians uh, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and apparently destroyed the Ark of the Covenant as well. And that was a sign of God's disfavor against the people. The northern kingdom uh, was overrun by the Assyrians in the 8th century and the southern kingdom was overrun by the Babylonians in the 6th century, all because they disobeyed and ignored God. If God can do that to this group of people, why and how could he not do it to the rest of the world today? And that is something that I think is frightening and we should think very seriously about it. And pray about it. I've given you all copies of that prayer that I had written and I would like you to review that and take it to heart. Okay. Let's <clears throat> go up to verse, uh, this would be chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and follow his ways exactly, to love and to serve your God? Now, fear in this case is not fear and trembling so that you don't do anything in your relationship with God. It should really be looked upon 
as revering or fearing to offend him, not fear and trembling uh, in a negative way. Oh, I have to back up a little bit. And now, Israel, what does your God, your Lord, your God, ask of you but to fear the Lord, your God, and follow his ways exactly, to love and serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul, to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I enjoin on you today for your own good. Think, the heavens, even the highest heavens, belong to the Lord, your God, as well as the earth and everything on it. Yet in his love for you and your fathers, the Lord has so attached to them uh, as to choose you, their descendants, in preference to all other people, as indeed he has now done. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and be no longer stiff-necked, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. You see, God, the first, uh, oh, God is capitalized, the second one is not. The first Lord is capitalized, and the second one is not. And that is referring to all of the so-called pagan gods, because there are no other gods, capital gods. The great God, mighty and awesome, who has no favorites except and accepts no bribes, who executes justice for the orphan, justice for the orphan and the widow and befriends the alien, feeding and clothing them, so that you too must befriend the alien, for you were, see, uh, Anna, that's where that has now changed. You must befriend the alien. Uh, that's the answer to your question earlier. So you too must befriend the alien, for you were once aliens yourself in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God shall you fear, and him shall you serve. Hold fast to him, and swear by his name. He is the glory, uh, he is your God, who has done for you, and those great and terrible things which your own eyes have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt to accept um, to Egypt, uh, 70 strong, that is, uh, when, when Jacob and his family originally went down, that is what they're talking to you about, as 70 people. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky, which he had promised to Abraham way back. Okay. We're going to leave it there. And I would like you to read, uh, the next uh, several chapters here for next week. Yeah. I think uh, 11 through 14. Um, any questions? I hope you're beginning to see and understand how Deuteronomy is a commentary on the lifestyle of the people. 
if you read the second book of Kings, you will see that every king uh, tried to outdo the previous one because of their um, lifestyle and the worship of pagan gods and intermarrying, all of which was against the teachings of Christ from the time of Moses. The idea of the Mosaic law, which obviously comes from God, but through Moses. And Moses was the one to not only uh, teach the people, but to expand on it for its full meaning at that time. These are laws that existed then. But things have changed as the paper on justice, which came from the Catholic Encyclopedia, if you haven't noticed that, uh, not something I wrote. But because of society's change, many things have also changed. And our relationship with God has disappeared. Yes, Willie? Well, it's not, it's not, that's a good question. I didn't expect you to memorize all of that stuff uh, or take it to heart. All I wanted you to do was to read it so that you could get some idea of what the, what was going on in the 9th and the 8th century BC in order for the Deuteronomist to write that book in the first place. Oh yes, yes. All, kind, all kinds of uh, sinfulness, debauchery, and so forth and so on. Yeah, it wasn't, it's not uh, both uh, first and second kings are not something that we need to be overly concerned with, but we need to at least understand what was going on at that time period. And that is how we interpret this book of Deuteronomy. It is a commentary on the lifestyle of the people. It is not history. There are a number of phrases in the paragraphs in, or the chapters that I read today and in the chapters that you'll be reading uh, in the weeks to follow that are commentaries on the lifestyle of the people, warning them that if they do not change, they are going to be subject to the consequences of God's wrath. That is what justice is all about. It would not be fair, as some people believe, that God loves everybody so much he's just going to open the doors to heaven to everybody. That would not be fair to those people who try to live according to the teachings of God. And we've got to understand that. There will be, there is people in hell, and there will be more people going to hell because of ignorance, of disinterest, of unconcern, and outright rebellion. 
And we must accept that and be concerned that we are not one of those people. So it really requires us to take heart and see what God has in store for us and where we have been in our relationship with him. Because the consequences apply to us and to everyone if we do not live the life and the style of life that God wants for us. Any other questions? Yes. In Deuteronomy and the Mosaic Covenant, it seems like justice is the land of milk and honey or death. Where does the foreshadowing of heaven and hell, what what's there is not here? No. There's no reward, eternal reward. It's just all materialistic. Yes. Remember, those people didn't have a theology like we have today. They didn't have 4,000 years of understanding and history to look back on. Uh, so their idea of heaven just didn't exist. And it didn't exist until much, much later. Uh, I think I mentioned this very briefly last time. Uh, because somebody asked me when did heaven and hell uh, come into play in the Jewish thought and as well as the Messiah and that wasn't until uh, towards the second century BC so way back in the 8th and ninth century BC uh, their ideas of theology that is the teachings of God were, were very basic uh, and, you know, the idea of heaven and hell just didn't really exist at that time. So punishment was as far as they could go. Yeah. Good point. Yes, Conchita. Yes. Yes. So there was no intrinsic reward because the reality is that even in the ancient ninth century, there were people who were following the laws of God and doing their best. Obviously. Maybe only out of fear and reward, but they were still doing that. It didn't get the literary form that they're going to be condemned along with everyone else. Not necessarily. God is going to bless them just as much as he would bless us today if they were following the laws as they understood them. That's the point, you see. It's only as they understood them. And to some degree, that's true for us today. We may be totally wrong, but if we sincerely believe certain things, then God's not going to hold it against us if we have done everything we can to understand a certain point. Uh, but you're right. You see, as I said, their idea of, of obeying God was very materialistic. 
very outwardly materialistic. And unfortunately, that got way out of hand as we come closer and closer to the time of Christ. And that's why uh, Jesus was so against, particularly the Pharisees, who were projecting this, you know, higher and greater than thou uh, attitude, but underneath. And that's if you went to Mass this morning. You heard that in the uh, readings of the Gospel this morning, that their outward appearance appearance was uh, very sublime, but their inward thought and meaning was full of sin. Yes? Theology of material did not have enough knowledge about the Holy life of eternal life and then life within the before. But there is a, uh, some portion in the chapter 10 of the, of the, and, and they're talking about heavens and then highest heaven. So what they're talking about highest heaven, what they mean by it? Do you know at that time? No, not, I really don't. I, I have no idea what they meant at the time. But obviously, um, their idea of religion in itself, the only example that they had were the Egyptians. When they lived in Egypt for 400 years, give or take a little, uh, the Egyptians had different levels of nirvana or whatever they called it at that time and different levels of holiness and this is probably a transfer of some of that so they did bring some of that idea into their own thinking unfortunately we often forget that the people of the ninth and eighth century and even up to the time of Christ had very little understanding of the hereafter and the Jewish people were kind of split on whether there was a hereafter that we would go to or not. And even in today's uh, Jewish culture, the Orthodox believe that there is no heaven. And the conservative and the reform uh, believe that there is some form of life after death, but they still don't have any definite understanding because the Jewish people have very little theology. Everyone who is uh, ordained, or I'm using that because I don't know what the real word is, as a rabbi, is kind of left to his own or her own now uh, to preach and teach as they wish because there is no central uh, control, there is no central authority, there is no central creed in the Jewish faith because in essence Judaism has been more or less uh, negated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this over and over in his uh, letter to the Romans and, and briefly in some of the other letters. And this, of course, is what got Paul into such hot water uh, at his time. It's because he was putting down uh, the Mosaic Law 
Well, all of those uh, dietary laws and some of the laws of cleanliness and hygiene were all good laws for their purpose in time, but they should not be connected to worshiping God. That's common sense. Um, and when Paul says that, in no uncertain terms, uh, you know, that was blasphemy as far as the Pharisees were concerned at that time. So Judaism has come a long way, but unfortunately Judaism could never, never uh, be the end of all and means all. We often should look, and we should not put down the Jewish people or Judaism in general, because that is the roots of our faith. And, you know, a tree cannot grow without roots. Roots cannot produce. It is together that they work and are successful. So therefore, we must honor the Jewish people, and as far as it went, but it was made null and void by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and that's the important point that we should remember. Let us end with a prayer. Father, we ask your blessing on our efforts to better understand all that was read and discussed today. Help us to take it to heart and see how we can come closer to you by observing your commandments and the teachings of your church. Give us the strength and the grace then to give up some of our preconceived notions and to open our minds and hearts to a new way and a fresh new look at your laws and you in particular. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.